0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us today as we discuss the growing prevalence of diabetes in the United States and its associated cardiovascular comorbidities. My name is Dr. Eden Miller. I'm a family practice physician, a diabetologist at High Lakes Healthcare in Bend, Oregon. And I'm
1: Dr. James O'Keefe, a cardiologist practicing at the St. Luke's Mid-America Heart Institute. We will discuss cardiovascular outcome trials or CVOTs, and how they have led to updated treatment guidance for this patient group. It is great to get this opportunity to share our thoughts and perspectives on what are some truly game-changing pivotal trials
0: at the intersection of cardiology and endocrinology. This podcast episode is a presentation supported by and created on behalf of Beringer Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Lilly USA LLC. The podcast presentation content has been reviewed for consistency with FDA guidelines and is not approved for continuing medical education credit. I would like to start our discussion by pointing out the broad reach and widespread seriousness of diabetes in the United States. The prevalence of diagnosed diabetes has increased rapidly in counties across the country from 2004 to 2016. This is a very troubling trend, And it is important to note that type 2 diabetes is the primary driver of this trend, as it accounts for 90 to 95% of diabetes cases. Based on
1: data from 2018, an estimated 34 million people have diabetes, which represents approximately 11% of the population. According to current projections, the number of people with diabetes in 2030 is predicted to rise dramatically to 55 million, or around 15% of the population. Also, a particular cause for concern is that of the 34 million people estimated to have diabetes in 2018, 7.3 million were undiagnosed. There are serious potential consequences of living with undiagnosed
0: diabetes. Let's talk about why early detection, diagnosis, and treatment of type 2 diabetes are paramount. The pathophysiology of the disease begins years, even decades, before diagnosis and the onset of symptoms. We might begin our story with the beta cells which are responsible for insulin production in the pancreas and start to decline in function well before the onset of diabetes. Initially, they perform fairly well by producing more insulin to compensate for this dysfunction, but ultimately begin to fail, resulting in decreasing insulin levels. At the same time, insulin resistance begins to increase, with various insulin-sensitive tissues in the body failing to absorb glucose effectively. And what is the result of lowered insulin combined with increased insulin resistance? Blood glucoses rise, of course. Several of my patients, when they come to my office, they often are confused. When they're ultimately diagnosed with diabetes, they say, how did this happen? I never knew that I had a sugar or glucose problem that put me at increased risk for diabetes. How is this possible? I described the pathophysiology that was likely escalating behind the scenes for decades, brewing, without them even knowing that.
1: The consequences of that pathophysiological development can lead to complications related to the cardiovascular system. Microvascular complications are one such category. These are quite prevalent in people with diabetes. 29% of patients have retinopathy, between 30 and 40% of people have chronic kidney disease or nephropathy, and 45 to 70% show symptoms of neuropathy.
0: Macrovascular complications are also quite common in these patients, with a 33% prevalence of stroke, 10% experience a myocardial infarction, and 21 presenting with evidence of coronary artery disease. It is also worth noting that these relationships and increased risks are not a one-way street. Although the science is still evolving, as we continue to learn more about the complexity of diabetes, it is becoming clear that this disease can affect multiple organ systems. This connection has been demonstrated by available epidemiological data, which show that at least 50% of people with diabetes in the United States have or are at high risk of developing cardiovascular disease. Due to this interplay between multiple organ systems, current guidelines recommend that the treatment of patients with diabetes and cardiovascular disease should involve multidisciplinary collaborative care coordinated between physicians and nurses across multiple specialties. So what can we do to decrease this cardiovascular risk associated with diabetes?
1: Well, treating diabetes in the more traditional way with a primary focus on A1c does not seem to be the answer. For example, there was a trial in the New England Journal of Medicine This very relevant here. They included patients with type 2 diabetes with an A1c of 7.5% or greater with a median of 8.1%. Then, patients were assigned to a standard therapy regimen with a target A1c of 7% to 7.9% or an intensive therapy regimen with a target of less than 6% patients in the intensive therapy group received more aggressive pharmacologic interventions to control their A1c.
0: Their primary outcome measure was defined as the first occurrence of a non-fatal myocardial infarction or non-fatal stroke or death from cardiovascular events. They didn't see any changes here that reached statistical significance. The study also examined mortality rates by observing deaths by any cause. In this analysis, the group with the intensive therapy regimen actually experienced significantly higher rates of death from any cause.
1: These data suggest that the traditional way of thinking about diabetes with an A1C-centered approach is not sufficient to alleviate the cardiovascular risk for those with diabetes.
0: We will now review a selected history of how cardiovascular safety became a focus for the treatment of patients with type 2 diabetes. Dr. O'Keefe, can you talk about the study that really started it all?
1: Of course. The study that Dr. Miller is referring to helped shape how we think about cardiovascular risk and diabetes, and ultimately inspired updates to the FDA guidance related to how we design and implement clinical trials in patients with diabetes. This was a study published in 2007 reporting results from a meta analysis of patients with type 2 diabetes. It compared patients with a specific medication to patients not receiving that medication. Unlike efficacy trials of antidiabetic therapies that had been conducted up to that point of time, which focused on glucose lowering, this particular meta analysis was designed specifically to assess the effect of the intervention on cardiovascular outcomes. The results raised concerns that the treatments for diabetes could have a negative effect on cardiovascular risk in a population that is already at increased risk. This really put a spotlight on cardiovascular outcomes moving forward for this patient group.
0: This was important, and new, because the cardiovascular safety of glucose-lowering therapies had not been thoroughly investigated, and the effects of glycemic control on cardiovascular risk were unknown.
1: Exactly. Following the results of that meta-analysis, in 2008, the FDA issued guidance to industry that new therapies for type 2 diabetes should demonstrate, through clinical trials, that they are not associated with an unacceptable increase in cardiovascular risk. In response to this guidance, CVOTs were initiated to assess the cardiovascular
0: risk of novel therapies for type 2 diabetes. And in 2020... The FDA issued updated guidance for these CVOTs regarding patient characteristics. This meant including patients with underlying cardiovascular disease, testing novel therapies in a large patient cohort for longer durations, and other considerations related to patient safety. But first, Dr. O'Keefe, can you review some cardiovascular endpoints that are typically assessed in CVOTs?
1: Sure. One commonly used endpoint in these CVOTs is called MACE, which stands for Major Adverse Cardiac Events. MACE is a composite endpoint, combining multiple clinical outcomes into a single score. This increases the number of events ascertained, thereby leading to an increase in statistical power and precision. MACE exists as a three- or four-point endpoint. The three-point MACE assessment includes cardiovascular death, non-fatal myocardial infarction, Non fatal stroke. Some CVOTs have used a primary endpoint of four point mace, which consists of the components of the three point mace plus hospitalization for unstable angina. However, unstable angina is difficult to adjudicate and its assessment can be subjective. As a result, most CVOTs use the three point mace. The three point mace has individual components that are reasonably straightforward, thus ensuring precision of the diagnosis is relatively easy to implement, and is well accepted by regulatory authorities. Now that we understand the cardiovascular outcomes that are assessed in CVOTs, we can look a little closer at the CVOT design.
0: Dr. Miller? Per FDA guidance, CVOTs were designed primarily to test that a novel therapy was non-inferior to placebo on pre-specified cardiovascular outcomes, such as the three-point or four-point MACE. Now, generally speaking, non-inferiority trials seek to demonstrate that the new intervention is no worse than the comparator by more than a small pre-specified amount. However, while the original intention of these trials was to assess non-inferiority of cardiovascular risk, they were designed in such a way that if certain parameters were met, additional analyses could be performed that would allow superiority to also be assessed. As we take a closer look at recent clinical trials of novel therapies for type 2 diabetes, where CVOTs were also included, the ability to assess superiority as well as non-inferiority has actually led to some quite surprising results. But before describing the trials so far, let's briefly review the mechanism of action of anti-diabetic medications that have completed CVOTs. First, SGLT2 inhibitors block the renal reabsorption of glucose, which leads to increased urinary excretion of both glucose and sodium. DPP4 inhibitors increase the production of insulin and suppress glucagon excretion through preservation of native GLP1. And GLP1 receptor agonists have a direct effect similar to those of DPP4 inhibitors, and they also are associated with a decrease in gastric emptying. Dr. O'Keefe, Do you want to cover some of the actual trials?
1: Yes, so let's review not only some recent CVOTs, but also their implications for the field of type 2 diabetes. A total of 16 large-scale randomized controlled clinical trials have been completed to date for SGLT2 inhibitors, DPP4 inhibitors, and GLP1 receptor agonists. Now, these 16 trials were an enormous undertaking. Together, they have collected data on incidence of maize. For more than 145,000 patients with type 2 diabetes. We've come a long way from not having the means to truly assess the cardiovascular risks of antidiabetic therapies to now having a very large data set to work with. So, what did these studies show? First, cardiovascular safety was demonstrated for all three classes. Or, to put it another way, these drugs were non inferior to placebo with respect to cardiovascular risk but the results for two of the three classes were quite surprising. SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists were not only found to be non-inferior and safe, but actually demonstrated superiority of cardiovascular outcomes compared with placebo.
0: Thanks, Dr. O'Keefe. By way of some closing thoughts, I just point out that the data that has become available from CVOTs and the associated updates and FDA guidance have helped to shape guidelines to provide more individualized and improved treatment plans for patients with diabetes and potential cardiovascular risk. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope that you were able to learn something valuable from this podcast
1: to incorporate in your clinical practice. Thank you again for joining us.